you've heard before. Maybe you've heard the word apocrypha before. Um, so the lost books of the Bible, there aren't any lost books. It's, it's not a thing. We haven't lost anything. The Bible is something that we have quite a good confidence on from the very beginning. We know this is God's Word, um, and uh, people were pretty aware of that. The Jews were very clear when this was something that was divinely inspired versus something that wasn't. Um, the early Christian church was in um, very consistent unity about which books were part of the, the, the canon of the Bible and which books weren't. And uh, so you have people like um, the, the guy who wrote the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown. He talks about uh, like the book of Thomas, or he, he suggests that um, the decision for which books were in the Bible uh, was made by uh, Constantine, Constantine the Great in the 300s and the Council of Nicaea. And that's just not the case. The historical records demonstrate that the Council of Nicaea didn't even discuss that. And so it's not, it's not accurate, and even secular historians w- would say that Dan Brown's book is a complete work of fiction. He made it all up. So we don't have lost books, but we do have apocryphal books, and there's kind of two categories, um, and one of those categories is Old Testament apocryphal books. These are books that were written before Jesus was born. Now, just because something old is old, does that make it inspired? Do you, what do you think? No, it, it could be uninspired. Okay, so yeah. just because somebody writes something and, it, and they were written a long, long time ago doesn't mean that God inspired them to write it. So the Jews had a series of books that um, they considered to be of historic value, um, cultural value, but they didn't consider them to be inspired. And, uh, and, and these are like, there's a, a couple chapters added onto the book of Daniel and uh, tells the story of how Daniel fought the dragon a fun story, but to the Jews, it was historical fiction, much like a Christian fiction book today would be considered an interesting story by a Christian, but nobody would think it was inspired by God. There's um, other books that are written about in the Bible, um, books like the, the book of Jasher and um, the, Paul's letter to the Laodiceans, but the thing is, if God did not see fit to keep them in the canon, then they weren't really ever part of the Bible. So we haven't lost them per se, but we certainly don't have them around. We, we can't find the book of Jasher to compare with, and we can't find the letter to the Laodiceans, which is okay. But some people don't think it's okay. So in, uh, if you go online, you do a little bit of research, you can find the book of Jasher, and it's quite interesting. It's uh, several hundred pages long, so quite a good read, uh, and it covers the same period of time as the Genesis to Deuteronomy time period, from the, the time of the creation to the time of the death of Moses. Um, here's the problem. First of all, there's five or so different examples of the book of Jasher that you can find online. They're all different. That's a problem. Um, the, the second problem is one of those is actually not even the book of Jasher. It's called the... the um, Sepher Hashir. It's written in Hebrew, and people are like, oh, look, it's the book of Jasher. We should translate that. But it's actually not, that's not even its name. The name translated into English is the book of the upright. It has nothing to do with Jasher. It's just that the name has Yah with a Y, not a J, Yasher in it, and, and people jump to conclusions. 
Um, the earliest book of Jasher that we can find was written by a guy in 19, or 1750. And everybody at the time and ever since who's had any historical training says that the guy who claims to be, you know, written by Jasher, the, the guy who claims to be Jasher is just some guy in 1750 who is making up a, a work of fiction. So if you find the book of Jasher online, please do not think that it is the book of Jasher that the Bible is, is pointing to. It's not. So have we lost the books of the Bible? No. We can be confident in the books that we have. And, and I would say even those that we have that are apocryphal, that are outside the, the canon, um, just because they're old doesn't mean we need to consider them as divinely inspired. Stick with the Bible. Um, the Christian church and the Jews before them um, knew what was in the Bible, and, uh, and we can be confident in that text. Okay. Jason, this next question I think it's a really good question. I've never thought of it before. It says, Adam isn't mentioned in the heroes of, heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Would that suggest he isn't saved? Well, first of all, I'd, I'd just like to, to think about the, the text. Hebrews 11 describes a bunch of people through history, but it, does it have the time to include everybody in history? So if... If somebody's not included, and if, if the lack of inclusion in, the, in Hebrews 11 um, would indicate that they're not saved, then there's only about a dozen people from Adam to, to the time of, of Paul that ever were saved. So that doesn't seem right. Uh, and when you look at the story of Adam, what you get is kind of a, just a picture of his life. He's created perfect, whatever. He sins. Um, he's kicked out of the garden. But when God sends him out of the garden and creates uh, that barrier so he can't come in, he also clothes Adam and Eve with, with, uh, with skins. And presumably, he clothes them with the skins after having shown them this whole sacrificial thing, this thing that points to the coming Messiah who would give his life for mankind. And, and so Revelation says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. Right there at the beginning, God demonstrates how this works and covers them with these, these animal skins. And I think that, that uh, there's some beautiful uh, symbology there, kind of like in Revelation, he says that he's going to give us robes, white robes, um, what they're made out of. I don't know, but, but he's going to cover us with something. God covered Adam. He's going to cover the Christians. Um, that, that's a symbol of God's salvation. And I think we can be fully confident that Adam's going to be in heaven and Eve. All right. Number three, if Jesus is coming soon, is there any point in planning for the future? You know, studying for a profession or even buying a house. Uh, no, sell all you have, live in a tent. <laughs> um, of course, the, we have to, well, even Jesus says, first of all, he says, we don't know the, the day or the hour. We can assume that that also means the week, the month, or the year. We don't know when Jesus is coming. What we know is that we're living in the time of the end. We talked about that the last couple nights. And so we can kind of narrow it down to a, a rough pattern in time, but we can't say Jesus is coming in six months or in a year. 
um, or in five years, or in ten, or even in a hundred. I think we can be confident he's going to come before that. I'm not saying that we should just be like, oh, he's not going to come for a long time, but, but we don't know. And uh, if you were a, uh, a savvy business person, you've got a two-year plan, maybe a five-year plan about how to do things. If you're a good um, steward of the resources that God's given you, then you're going to have a plan. Um, maybe some savings, maybe some um, investments, uh, a home that you've been uh, paying down. And if you are uh, so lucky to have already paid it off, it's fantastic. So those things you should see as God's resources. I think that's what the Bible describes us as. We're stewards of the resources God has given us. Um, but uh, that means that we should be good, savvy stewards. Like uh, Jesus told the parable of the, the, the three men who a master gave something to. The Bible calls them talents. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, to another he gave one. And the man with five talents goes out and he, he is a savvy business person and he multiplies those talents comes back with 10. The guy that was given two doubles that and comes back with four. The guy who was given one buries it in the ground and says um, some bad things about the master. And when the master comes back, he gives the one back to him, uh, to which the master says, thank you. Um, That wasn't what I expected you to do Um, here. And he took the one talent and gave it to the guy with 10. And uh, that's not how we want to live our lives. We want to live our lives faithful to God, which means that we should be, um, that, that we should, as Jesus put it in one parable, we should occupy, we should live in the world until Jesus comes. And our job isn't to figure out the timing. That's God's job. The timing is God's job. Our job is to be faithful stewards until He comes. And I would argue that the best thing that we can do in, Jesus says, to go into all the world and take the gospel, the best thing we can do is to be, number one, um, abiding with Christ. Let my life um, be a life that, that is lived in, in connection with Jesus. And number two, obedient to Jesus' commands. And, and those things, as we work with Christ, as we pray, as we ask Him, what's your will? What's your plan? He's going to open doors and close them. He's going to speak to our hearts. Um, he's going to have godly counselors give us guidance and stuff. And, uh, and I think those are, are, are really good ways for us to make wise choices. Um, we need to be excellent workers in the marketplace. A lazy Christian is a bad witness for Christ. We need to, to be intelligent workers for the gospel field. We need to be well-trained. And so I would say things like education, uh, planning for a job, even starting godly families. These are some of the best things we can do to, to show the world who Jesus is. Um, and obviously, that doesn't mean that, uh, that we shouldn't go. We just need to go where and when God asks us to. And so keeping that close connection with Him is how we can know how we should be stewards of his, his resources. So um, thank you for the questions. We have a giveaway tonight. Um, this is a, it's called The Appearing. It's a DVD series with a, a little workbook by Sean Boonstra. And in this series, Sean is covering several of the, the similar things that we've recently talked about. Four shorter um, programs. I think they're about 30 minutes long. Uh, a Planet in Upheaval, The Abomination of Desolation, The Appearing, Prophecy Interrupted, and The Battle of Armageddon. Some subjects you, we've covered here already. Um, I think he's a better speaker than I am, so you might enjoy him. But anyway, we're going to give this away to somebody. 
And uh, I've got a couple more over there. And uh, if you're interested in taking one of these home, um, they cost us like 15 or 20 bucks. Um, nobody's keeping tabs. If you give a donation uh, to take it home, that's great. We'd appreciate that. Um, helps us cover our costs. But who are we giving this one to? We are giving this to Rhonda Hutchison. All right. Rhonda, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> All right. And I know Rhonda is a mom, because your daughter is Adeline, right? Yes, okay. <laughs> well, tonight, we get to talk about, oops, oh, I, I wanted to mention, if you ever want to make a checkout, just make it out to Discovery Centers. Okay, um, so tonight we're talking about the appearing. We get to explore what the Bible says about the second coming, and uh, this topic is a topic that I'm really excited about because we get to explore um, these absolutes, these certainties, these concrete things the Bible describes. And I really like it when the Bible is concrete and we don't have to guess, don't you? I like that. Anyway, so tonight we're going to explore some certainties. And then on Tuesday night, tomorrow night we're not meeting, we're going to have a break. But on Tuesday night, we're going to explore the anatomy of evil. That's Revelation 12. We're going to answer the question, if God is good, why evil? And we're going to let God tell us the story. Can you imagine being God, creating a perfect environment, and then evil shows up? Hmm. What did you do wrong? (laughs) So that's a question we need to explore, and we want to see it from God's point of view. uh, So that's Tuesday night. On Wednesday night, the ultimate mind game. If uh, you've ever wrestled with temptation, you know, struggling with something that you just you know you shouldn't be doing, but you keep doing anyway, then welcome to the human race. And on Wednesday night, we get to figure out some behind the scenes, pull back the curtain and and understand a little bit of the why, and and also um, try to to figure out some of the solution. And also, there's this question, can you and I stand on Mount Zion with God? Is that possible? Because he does say that sin cannot exist in the presence of God. So, can we? Is it possible that we could be among those people who stand on Mount Zion? Then uh, we're going to skip Thursday night. We, we have a break that night, and on Friday night, we're going to come uh, looking at the first part of a trilogy, um, a three-part series, The Coming of the Lawless One, and this is the, the man of sin. We're actually going to just touch on it a little bit tonight, but in, in 2 Thessalonians, he, he brings up this man of sin issue, and uh, then that's going to lead us into um, the subject for uh, Saturday night, which is from Revelation 14, and uh, it's this uh, Revelation's sign of God, and it, it, it indicates that there's going to be a people, a movement, um, uh, the, the people that are following Jesus at the end of, of time that will have a special work, a special message, a special thing about God to share. And we're going to explore that from Revelation 14. And that's going to um, lead us into Sunday night next week, a week from tonight, um, the, the last part of this trilogy in Revelation's Forgotten History. And we're going to explore a question that some people think they have answered, and they think that they have it answered from the Bible. And we're going to ask that question, and we're going to see if the answer is actually in the Bible. So you don't want to miss that one. So then on Tuesday night, again, we skip a Monday. On Tuesday night, a river runs through it. We're not going to be covering the movie. We're going to be looking at 
a, a river in Genesis and a river in Revelation. We're going to be exploring the beauty of what these rivers talk about, what they mean, and how we can experience the blessing of those rivers of life even right now. Then Wednesday next week, um, the subject, um, we're going to finally get to Revelation 13 and look at this beast that comes crawling up out of the sea. And I think you're going you're gonna to enjoy it. Babylon rising is, is uh, well, we're going to answer the question, who is that beast? But I'm not going to answer it. I'm going to give you all the tools, and I think you're going to fairly shout it out by the time we're done. You'll know what it is because it's going to be obvious. So tonight, the appearing. What will it be like? Let's begin our study with prayer. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we just are so grateful that you have revealed yourself. And uh, we ask that you would bless us with your Holy Spirit. Please forgive me and cleanse my lips. Help me to speak your truth. And uh, give us that gift of hearing so that we can understand. Sometimes these topics in the Bible have nuance and numbers and strange things and And we don't want to be confused by your word at all. We want to have clarity. So please give us that gift. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to look at one of the most talked about subjects in the Bible. Over 2,500 times the second coming of Christ is mentioned throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we find it all over the place. It's in Psalms. It's in everywhere you'll find the second coming and allusions to it. But if you walk into a Christian bookstore and you pick up a random book on the second coming and then grab a second random book on the second coming, you'll probably find differences, significant differences between the theories of how this is all going to work, even among Christians. A dozen, a hundred different ideas about these different things. I've uh, had some conversations with uh, Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and, and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and people of all different faiths, Mormons, everybody has a different idea of what this is like or what this will be like. And so tonight we're going to try to stay away from theory. We're going to look at what the Bible says and let the Bible tell us what it's going to be like. And if if you come with all these theories, the question might be, is it possible to understand what the Bible says? And I'm going to say absolutely yes. The reason we come up with all different theories isn't because the Bible is confusing. And tonight, I'm going to show you why we have so many different theories today. And I think you'll be interested with that. First of all, let's ask a question. Did Jesus actually say he would be coming back? Or is this something we just made up? Well, I asked two questions, so I can't. Which one? Yes, to that, that he said, or yes, that we made it up? Yes, he said it. Let's look at a text, though. Let's let the Bible show us, and it's John 14, and Jesus says this to the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Um, it, it doesn't make a big difference, but I really like the translations that use the word rooms because it says in my father's house, and the Greek word there is more connected to room than it is mansion, but that's okay either way. The point is that he's making a dwelling place, and then he says this, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Look at this. This is God saying, in my house, I'm preparing a bedroom just for you. 
a place, maybe it's a suite, something just for you, right? And I want you to live with me. That's what God is saying. And Jesus promises to go there and prepare that and then come back and take us to where he is. That's his promise. And, and this is a big deal. The deepest desire of God is to, to live with us, to tabernacle with us. We talked about that feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. God's passionately interested in us. So, yes, the second coming is a biblical idea. Jesus said he is going to come again. But what exactly should we expect about Jesus' second coming? What should it look like? What should we be um, planning on? Um, And when Jesus talks about this, he points to a problem, a significant problem. And, And he's saying that because this is such an important thing, you might be deceived. He says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. So there's a potential for deception in the subject of the second coming, which means that we need to be careful to to know what the Bible says so that we can be certain that we actually have truth, not just theory, but God's truth. Again and again, the Bible points out this idea of deception. And uh, so instead of focusing on people's ideas, we just need to go back and say, what does the Bible say? And that, that will prevent us from falling into these lies and these deceptions. Um, now, there's this, this idea here that Jesus says that we won't even be able to trust our senses. If, if somebody came to you and, and they just happened to have wings and, uh, and they were glowing, you know, bright, shiny being, and they said something to you, would you be inclined to believe that they had some knowledge that you didn't have? Would you be inclined to say, wow, that must be heavenly? I think, I think so. I'm not saying that's going to happen or the Bible says it'll happen, but what I'm saying is our senses are not always trustworthy. So what we need is, uh, thus says the Lord. This is what God says will happen. And if it says that our senses have the possibility of being deceived, we should be aware of that. So let's look at some absolutes, five things we can know for sure. Principle number one, when Jesus returns, he really returns. It will be literally him. He's returning literally. Now, I know that sounds obvious, but uh, there's a lot of people that believe that Jesus is returning or the second coming is a spiritual or a symbolic thing. It's, in, in some people's minds, a metaphor for a spiritual awakening, and when you finally reach that, that higher plane of consciousness, then that's the second coming for you. Some people believe that, that there's a certain timeline, and then at this time, Jesus came into the world spiritually, and some spiritual thing started happening. Um, other people say it's just a symbol for a new era of, of world history, uh, when peace and tranquility will reign. But, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And what we want to know is, what does the Bible teach? So, the language is pretty obvious. We can find it in, first, in Acts 1. Um, it says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. 
So we have this, um, th- this experience. Jesus is with the apostles for a few days after his resurrection, and they're standing on this, this hill, and he says his goodbyes, and then as he's talking, he rises into heaven. And they're looking at him and probably astonished what's going on, and these angels appear, and they say, that Jesus. You know what that makes me think? Which Jesus is that? And think about it. What kind of Jesus is coming back? Uh, Who is he? Um, Obviously, we know the Jesus that died and was resurrected, but what was he resurrected like? The Bible says that it's a real physical Jesus that ascended up into heaven that day. Um, When Jesus was resurrected, the, the disciples were having trouble believing he was alive. And so, they, they were afraid of him. They thought he was a ghost at one point. And uh, so, uh, Jesus, he wants to prove to them, no, no, I'm, I'm God, but I'm also fully, absolutely human too. And in that story, Luke 24, he says this, why are you troubled? Why do you doubt, or why does doubt arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you have. I know it's hard to believe, he's saying, but go ahead and touch me. Do you see the wounds from the cross? Um, Touch me. See that I'm real. And then he he gives the ultimate proof. He says, give me something to eat. Would would a ghost eat food? And so he, he eats some fish, and it's Jesus, like the literal flesh and bones Jesus that rises into heaven. And the angels say that that Jesus, the literal flesh and bones Jesus, is going to return. And, and I think that's, that's pretty cool. We can know that Jesus, not a spiritual thing, not a metaphysical or theoretical or a new period or new era thing, but a literal Jesus is going to return. So that's the first item on our list. Jesus will literally return. He's not just coming in a spiritual sense. It's going to be Him. Uh, Now, point number two is when Jesus comes, you and I are going to see it. We're going to be able to see it with our eyes. And, uh, you know, I think there's going to be people that haven't ever been able to see before, and when Jesus comes, the first thing they'll be able to see is the return of Jesus. I think that's going to be pretty exciting. Everybody is going to see it. How do I know? How do I know that every, everyone's going to see it? Well, it's because the Bible tells me so. Revelation 1.7, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him. That's pretty, pretty clear. How many eyes? Every eye will see Him. Now, um, when you go back to the book of Isaiah, the Bible promises that one day the eyes of the blind will be completely restored. So, we have this promise, and Revelation says every eye. So I think that that means that even the blind will be able to see. And then Matthew 24, Jesus says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? What a horrible thing to say. Why in the world would the tribes of the earth mourn? Why would the people be unhappy that Jesus returns? Um, I mean, Jesus says in John 14, don't fear. And, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't mourn. 
The, the intention is that this is a good thing. Jesus is coming back, and yet the, all the tribes of the earth are mourning. They're upset. They're, they're wishing that Jesus wasn't coming. What kind of person would be unhappy that Jesus is returning? It's the person who hasn't prepared, who doesn't like Jesus, who doesn't think He exists or whatever, who, who's, who's pushed Him off for, uh, for his, their whole life. And then when Jesus comes, they say, oh shoot, He is real. Oh, bummer, I didn't prepare. And, and they're not happy. They're not happy. They're afraid. What a shame, because right now, there's time for everybody to be ready. There is no reason for anybody to not be ready for Jesus' return. Do, do you remember those feasts? We had the Feast of Trumpets. It was 10 days of preparation before the Day of Atonement, before that judgment experience, where they had to, to either be repentant and have cleaned their, their life or kicked out of the camp, right? That was that yearly experience of the Jews, but, but that predicted something that would come later. And that judgment period and that preparation time is something that we get to, to, to have today. This is the time to prepare. And so we don't need to not be ready. There's no point in being lost. But he says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribe, sorry, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So when Jesus comes, how many will see it? All the tribes of men. And uh, the Bible says that it's going to be it's going to be bright like lightning in Matthew 24, 27. As lightning comes from the east and goes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, nobody misses lightning. When there's a lightning strike nearby, it doesn't matter if you've got the curtains drawn, you can see that lightning, and it flashes in this pulsing bright flash. You know that the lightning is there. And, and even if you can't see the lightning, you can still hear the thunder rolling through. And, and if it's close enough, you can feel stuff shake, even if you can't hear it. Everybody's going to be able to know. But you might say, I heard this theory that, um, you know, that, that, that maybe things are going to be secret, you know, that it's, that it's not going to be so um, obvious to people that, that um, a lot of people aren't going to to know that it's, that it's there. And uh, I, I know that theory. I've heard it too. Uh, but the question is, is it in the Bible? And so we're going to keep looking at some of these, these uh, evidences, these certainties, and then we're going to come back to that theory and explore that for, for just a minute. The Bible says unequivocally that when Jesus comes, every eye will see him. So here's what we know. We know Jesus will literally return. We know Christ's coming will be visible. And uh, let's look at point number three. You're going to hear it. It's going to be audible. And how do I know? Well, that's what the Bible says. Matthew 24, Jesus, he does happen to be the authority on the subject of his return, so I think we can trust him. He says, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Can, can you bring me that, that trumpet there? He'll, bring, he'll send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to another. Now, I, I play the trumpet a tiny bit, and, and uh, this is not going to be representative of uh, my skills because I haven't warmed up and, uh, you know, stage fright and all. 
But, but let's just see. You tell me, is, is, is this uh, loud? Are trumpets loud? You can make a pretty good noise with a trumpet. And I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> he cut my sound. <laughs> he knew that it was going to be loud. But, but this says that it, it's going to be the sound of a trumpet. But, but my trumpet can't call the dead to life. And the sound of the second coming, the Bible says, brings the dead back to life. So, so it's going to be even louder than that. How loud? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 describes it. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So that, that phrase that you've heard, um, that's loud enough to wake the dead, it's a biblical idea. Jesus' second coming is a loud experience. It says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. He's going to return with a shout, with a trumpet, with a call to the dead to rise again. And, I mean, just think about it. If you've got, um, if you've got this trumpet blast that's really loud and this angel's voice that's really loud and then the call for the dead to rise and then the dead rising, um, it's, it's going to be pretty obvious, don't you think? Something about this is, um, is going to be loud, Jesus said in John chapter 5, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the grave will hear his voice. Even the dead can hear God's voice. And that's, that's a huge commotion. Lots of stuff is happening. And if the dead are popping out of their graves, um, it's just going to be all that much more loud. Because as soon as those dead people rise from the grave, do you think they're going to be praising God? <laughs> I mean, that's a transformation. That's, uh, that's amazing. And what about the people that have been missing those people who just rose from the grave? I think they're going to be praising God too. Um, it's going to be a loud noise when Jesus comes. Psalm 50 says it this way, our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. Have you been in, an, in a hurricane? No? How about a tornado? If you're near a tornado, it sounds like a freight train coming through. It is loud. And uh, like right next to the, the, the rails of a freight train, it's loud. A hurricane, the wind blowing so hard, you can shout at a person that's just a, a few feet away from you and they can't hear. Um, and, and have you ever been in a, a big fire? And there's roaring fire all around you, the cracking and the popping and the wind and whatnot. Is it loud? It's a, a shout, it's a trumpet call, it's a, a call for the dead to rise, and apparently there's a, 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 a hard wind and fire kind of experience at the same time. Um, exactly how that works, we don't know, but something about this, this experience is pretty loud. The Bible says in Isaiah 35 that one day the ears of the deaf would be unstopped, and so even the dead can hear, and the deaf will be able to hear Jesus' return. Everybody will hear this noisy event. So we already know that Jesus is going to literally return, that it, his coming will be visible. Uh, the Bible makes it clear it's going to be an audible event that every ear will hear. So point number four is that it's going to uh, put the 4th of July fireworks to shame. 
It's going to be a glorious event, something that is amazing and wonderful and awesome. Um, Notice that again, our God shall come and shall not keep silence. This fire will devour before Him and uh, shall be very tempestuous all around. Tempestuous. Listen to this description from Revelation 6. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it was rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. When Jesus comes, the sky is going to come unglued. It's going to be amazing. Have you ever seen a, a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset? What about when there's a storm way out there and the sun kind of comes over those clouds and just colors everything? Can you imagine a sky with clouds when Jesus the one who created the sun will come right through those clouds. Do you think we're going to notice the change in those clouds? I think so. I think it's going to be a splendid, glorious experience. In Matthew 16, Jesus describes it this way, the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. Now, notice when Jesus comes the judgment has already taken place because his reward is with him. He's, he's brought the reward for everybody. And, and this is important because it's, it's the end of something. There's no changing your mind. Um, you ever taken one of those like SAT tests or the GED test or, you know, some kind of an, a, a college assessment, the MCATs or something like this? Have you, have you taken a test before? There's a point when you turn it in, Right? A point when, when that test is over and you hand it in and whatever, uh, whatever you did on that test, that's the score that you get. There is a time that judgment is finished and Jesus comes with his reward with him, your grades, so to speak. Thankfully, we're graded on, on Jesus' curve and not our own when we accept him, but that's maybe a bad example of, of the whole salvation thing, but this is, there is a, that an end point. Judgment does come, and Jesus, um, after the judgment, comes with his reward. And, and the reward is amazing. The Bible talks about a transformation of the saints, and, and that's going to be glorious. And it talks about all of the hosts of heaven that come with him. Uh, in fact, in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon his throne of glory. This is, this is an amazing, glorious event. Not just Jesus, not just a few angels, but all of the host of heaven. The Bible says that in... Um, Revelation 6, that the heavens were, or heaven was silent for the space of half an hour. It was empty. There's nobody to praise God because God's on his way to earth. And it's, it's empty because, or there, there's no, no noises in heaven because um, the angels have come with him. And when the angels praise God, it is beautiful and, and noisy. The story of Jesus' resurrection includes an angel and a hundred soldiers who simply by looking at the angel fell on the ground as people, as though they were dead. Can you imagine the whole sky filled with the angels? And, and how many angels are there? We don't know exactly. When, uh, when John saw a bunch of angels surrounding the throne in heaven, he said this, I beheld and, and I heard the voice of many angels around about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. 
10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And then he says, and thousands and thousands more, so millions more. 100 million and millions and millions more. Who knows how many? He can't count that, that far. <laughs> it would take you a long time to count millions of people, right? He is just, he, he says, there's so many here. And that's what's coming. Beautiful, glorious, uh, bright, a lot of angels. And then in Daniel 7, Daniel sees the angels. He says, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. So a bare minimum, 100 million angels are coming to the earth and probably lots more. So we know when Jesus comes, it's really going to be him. We know that it's going to be something that every eye will see, that every ear will hear, and it's going to be the most spectacular, glorious, beautiful event in all of human history. And when Jesus comes, uh, the fifth thing is that it will mark the end of world's history. And this is an important point. Our, our history with evil and with sin is going to come to an end. It's final. There's nothing that we can do to stop it from coming. There's nothing we can do to, uh, to, to change that course, nothing we can do to change the decisions that we've made um, by the, when that time actually comes. It's the rock that comes out of the mountain, cut out without hands, and crushes all the kingdoms of the earth and then fills the whole earth. That's the experience that Jesus' second coming is. It's the change. Just like the Medes and the Persians coming to Babylon, it was over for Babylon. Belshazzar was weighed in the balances and found wanting, and that night his life was taken from him and the kingdom was given to the Medes and the Persians. And when the Medes and the Persians faced Greece, Alexander the Great on the battlefield, they lost because God said that was going to happen and it was the end for the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, and, and then when Greece um, was broken up into its four kingdoms and um, the, with the, the, the generals there, Rome comes marching in with their iron monarchy and they take over. And Greece is done for. And today, they're basically a bankrupt um, country held together by people that are helping out from the rest of the European Union. Greece is no more. It's done. And that's what happens when Jesus comes. Everything in this world, the history of evil, comes to an end. In Revelation 22, 11 and 12, it says, "'He who is unjust, let him be unjust still.'" This is that time when Jesus comes. He, he makes this declaration. It's decided. It's done. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to, ev- to everyone according to his works. At this moment, it's all over. The judgment is finished. The angels close the books, and the rewards are final. If you've chosen Jesus at that moment, your decision will stand forever. If you've rejected him at that moment, your decision will stand forever. There are no more chances. And that's why in the feasts, there was a feast of trumpets. There was a preparation time. There was a a point when everybody knew that this was the deciding time. I need to make my decision now. And the world gets that deciding time too. When Jesus comes, there's only going to be two groups, those who are ready and waiting, and those who are not ready and do not want to see Jesus. 
Revelation 6 describes this. It says, The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And, and really, when we look at this, you and I just need to say, What foolish people. Nobody's afraid of a lamb. Nobody is afraid of a lamb. And when Jesus does everything to save us, when Jesus puts his life out there and gives his life on our behalf, when he, when he works hard to advocate for us, when, it's, when it, the Bible says he's the judge that judges us, we have nothing to lose. All we have to do is give our case to Jesus and say, could you be my advocate? Could you stand in my place? Could you please plead my cause in the judgment? And we're good because he's our advocate and he's our judge and he's our coming king. And we just don't need to worry because he's the lamb. And yet these people, they say that the wrath has come. The wrath of the lamb has come. Please hide us and let the rocks fall on us because we don't want to face the second coming. Today is that day of decision. There's no point in being lost. There's no need in being lost because Jesus has given us time. He's given us time to decide. In Isaiah 25, 9, it says, And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Two groups of people, the ones who say, Hide us from the Lamb and his wrath, And the other group that raises their arms to heaven and says, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Which group would you rather be in? Which group has the better outcome in this scenario? Five points. Jesus will literally return. Every eye will see him. Every ear will hear him. It's going to be the most spectacular, glorious event in human history. And it will mark the end of world's events and every decision will be final. I want to ask you a question. How do these five points fit with the, well, with the modern thinking about the second coming of Christ? How do they match up with what a lot of Christians teach and think about the second coming? I think it's a big question because um, it's only been in the last hundred or so years, maybe a bit more, that uh, we've had so many different ideas about the second coming of Christ. Um, all these theories became really popular in just the last 100, 120 years. Um, and the theory that is popular looks a lot like this. Um, Jesus comes for the believers, and there's all different ways of, of um, uh, thinking about that. One of them is the secret rapture. And then there's the reign of the Antichrist for seven years of tribulation. And then Jesus returns with the believers at the end of that tribulation period. And, uh, and there's all kinds of different ideas about how it all works, like I said, but this is the, the general idea. And some people say that um, they, they talk about pre-trib and then mid-trib and post-trib. <laughs> and uh, when will Jesus come and how will this all work? And they've got all these different ideas. And uh, so lots of variations. But, but the question is, is this biblically accurate? Is this um, something that harmonizes with what the Bible says? So there are some things where it does match up and kind of uh, describe what's, what the Bible does um, say will happen. It teaches that time is running out more quickly than people think, and uh, that's definitely something the Bible describes. 
It also teaches, at least in the most popular versions, that um, before Jesus comes, there's going to be a mass deception and millions of people will fall away from God, and that's also true. Um, And of course, it teaches that when Jesus returns, it's going to come as a surprise to a lot of people, and I, I think that harmonizes with what the Bible says. It also teaches that the safest, most reliable place to secure your beliefs in the last days is in the Word of God, and I can't argue with that. Well, um, and, and lastly, I would say it teaches that the time to make your decision is now. Don't delay, don't put it off. Um, so in a lot of ways, the theory kind of connects with the Bible, um, but there's still some questions. Um, and I think the question that a guy named Dr. Rowland Bingham, who happened to be uh, an editor at uh, Christianity Today, a magazine, a big popular magazine in Christianity, um, he, he had this question. And it really was a question from his wife, because she was preparing for a Sunday school lesson, and she, she wanted to know, she said, I have to teach Sunday school in the morning, and we're talking about the second coming. Oops. Um, and, and so she said, uh, what's that verse that says Jesus is going to come back and secretly steal away the, um, the Christians? Where's that verse? And, and he said, oh, that's easy. That's a uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So she went away and she read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Um, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, that didn't seem right. So she went back and and she said, honey, that seems to be the noisiest verse in all of the Bible. Now listen to what Roland Bingham says. In sheer desperation, I took out my Bible and threw myself helplessly on the Lord. The weeks that followed that innocent query and the trouble into which it landed me is a separate story. If you hold the theory of a secret rapture of the church, try out that simple question on yourself. And I think that's a really good thing to do. If that theory is something that that you think about, go back and say, where is that verse in the Bible that says that the secret rapture will happen? Where is it in the Bible? So here's our five certainties one more time. Jesus will literally return. It'll be visible. Every eye will see him. Every ear will hear him. It will be glorious, and it will mark the end of earth's history. Now, if you look carefully, um, you won't find the theory of the secret rapture, the secret coming of Jesus anywhere in these five certainties. Um, Everybody sees him at the same time. It can't be secret. Listen again, Matthew 24, 30. When the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Um, Now, some people will say, well, that's only describing the wicked. That That must be after the tribulation. Okay, Um, I could accept that, except the very next thing Jesus says in verse 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. This is the time of the gathering of the elect and of the mourning of the wicked. They both happen at the same time in Jesus' version of the story. We all see it, the wicked and the righteous. He comes for both groups in a sense, right at that moment. And then uh, Jesus says that this event, the second coming, will happen very similarly to what happened in the flood. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. 
so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So, question. Did the righteous and the wicked experience the flood at the same time? Yes, they did. And that's the comparison Jesus gives to the second coming. The righteous and the wicked will experience it at the same time. So, this idea that Jesus would come for the righteous before um, and then the wicked later, it doesn't match up with what the Bible is describing. And, and honestly, there's another question. When does the Antichrist appear? This popular theory would suggest that Jesus comes for the believers and, and they all disappear. And then there's an Antichrist for seven years that reigns, and then, and then Jesus comes again uh, after that. But Paul says that the Antichrist comes before Jesus comes for the church. Um, you can read about it in 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, Paul wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians, and they got excited. Jesus is coming. And, uh, and, and Paul wanted to make sure that he set the record straight. And so in 2 Thessalonians, he says, all right, there's some things that are going to happen before the, the first coming or the second coming of Jesus. He says, um, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I mean, Paul couldn't be any clearer. Jesus comes for the church after this man of sin has been working in the world. And that doesn't fit the popular theory. It's the popular theory is in contrast to the Bible on this point. And, and honestly, there's a lot more in the Bible about this subject. The Bible also teaches that Antichrist is actually destroyed by the brightness of Jesus' return. Uh, Th- 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the, breath, with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So this Antichrist is already working in the world, and Jesus ends that when he comes. Everything is finished. There are no more chances when Jesus comes for his church. But in theory five, or the, the popular theory rather, there is a second chance. You see, the righteous are taken to heaven, and there's tribulation, and the Antichrist rules and stuff, but the popular theory is that many people will come to Christ during this period of time, and that there will be an active evangelism outreach during this time, and Jesus, when he comes after that seven-year period, will, will be able to take those people too. But the Bible says when Jesus comes, it's done. The Antichrist is over. Decisions have been made. The rewards are handed out. It's over. Remember what Jesus said there in Revelation 22, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. No second choice or second chances, no makeup exams. God has given us everything we need to prepare in advance. That's why we're here right now so that we can prepare and be ready. According to the plain Bible facts, at some point in history, the Antichrist appears and uh, Jesus returns in glory to end world history. So this is what I would suggest is a more biblical scenario. 
Antichrist, an unknown period of time, Jesus comes. That's the description the Bible gives. Um, Now, we discovered that uh, for about 1,800 years, Christians kind of had the same idea about prophecy and uh, were pretty consistent about that. And then um, a a couple hundred years ago, a few hundred years ago, um, things kind of changed. Well, how many people do you think believed that Jesus was coming secretly, um, you know, the students of God's Word, um, a few hundred years ago? How many believed that He was a secret thing? Nobody. Nobody was teaching that it was secret. Um, well, what about all those verses in the Bible that describe Jesus coming as a thief? Doesn't that suggest that it would be secret? Don't thieves kind of secret in like a cat burglar and stuff? Well, yes, it does. Second Peter 3.10 says this, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. There you go. A thief in the night. That seems secret. Um, you know, he, he, he sneaks in, gets what he wants, leaves. That's, that's it. Except you got to read the whole verse. Remember, we've been, been talking about reading the whole thing. Well, read the whole verse. I mean, it, and it's just right here in this verse. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. If Jesus is coming as a thief, he's not coming as a cat burglar. He's coming and he's breaking down the door and shouting his, his presence and pushing everybody aside and getting what he wants. Like, this is not a secret thiefing. That's, that's, not, that's not the reason the Bible says he comes as a thief, because it's secret. Look in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The second coming isn't a secret, but for many it will be a surprise. That's what the Bible means by Jesus coming as a thief. Jesus is coming as a surprise, but not, he shouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise. If we're paying attention to God's Word and we're paying attention to what's going on in the world, it's just a matter of saying, Jesus is coming soon. I'm so excited. But many people are blissfully unaware, not reading God's Word and not preparing. And for that crowd of people, unfortunately, it's going to be a surprise. But notice, doesn't he even introduce some stuff that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, the labor pains? Like labor pains on a woman. Like it might be that uh, a pregnant woman wouldn't know that she's pregnant. It's theoretically possible. I don't know. I've never been pregnant. There's apparently some TV series about pregnant ladies that don't know they're pregnant. I just can't imagine that that be the case, but um, even if you know that you're pregnant, you don't know when your labor pains are going to come. You don't know when contractions are going to begin. You have an estimate date, and, and, and they're usually wrong. Um, the baby comes before, baby comes after, and so it's a surprise. But uh, is the baby's, ret- baby's coming a surprise? No, there is, there is a buildup. Labor pains are here. We know what's happening next. There is a buildup. And the Bible is described, Jesus himself described a buildup to his second coming. And we can see those labor pains all along the way, those little markers that would say, Jesus is coming soon. The return of Christ is near, like labor pains. So there's no reason for it to be a surprise as long as you're paying attention. 
Unfortunately, when the church sees prophecy pointing to itself, we don't really like the mirror very much. I mean, especially when the church has, you know, got torture chambers and is burning people on the stake um, because they don't agree with, with the official teaching or whatever. Um, that, that's really bad news. That's a bad way of relating. And so when the Bible points the fingers towards the church, and God's not afraid to do that. He, he pointed fingers at the Israelites, right? And, and so when God points the fingers at the church, the church has two options. One is to say, hey, you know, the Bible says that there's going to be a great falling away. It looks like we've been doing that. That's, that's really bad. We should repent. That would be the right thing to do. But the church, many in the church say, no, no, no. That's, d- just turn that mirror around. Stop pointing fingers at us. Um, we don't want to change. And so instead of accepting the, in, in repentance, um, some people decided that they were going to uh, switch things around. So 1500s come around, scholars start to argue, and uh, some people, in an effort to take that spotlight off the church, start to develop these new theories about prophecy and about the end of time. There was this guy named Louis Alcazar. And Louis Alcazar, um, he came up with an idea that, that kind of discounts most of the uh, miraculous things. And so anything that would, would be like pointing into the future, prophecy that points out the future, he suggests, no, that's not really pointing out the future. That's actually talking about stuff that's happening right at the time of the author. So Daniel's prophecies, oh, they all happen around the time of, of, uh, of Daniel. And John's prophecies, oh yeah, that's all talking to the church, you know, the seven churches right there in Asia Minor. And that theory didn't catch on as much. Uh, But there are Christians and churches that teach that theory. Uh, And then there's this other guy, um, Francisci Ribera. And Ribera did something different. He said, all this stuff is prophecies of the future, way in the future, way out there in the future. It hasn't happened yet. And then he, he is the one who describes this last seven years of earth's history that all that stuff is going to take place in that time of earth's history. And that idea ends up being more successful and, and uh, actually it took a couple hundred years, but eventually the church starts to, to catch on to it and says, ah, oh, that's a good idea. And it was about 100, 100, 150 years ago that it became really popular to teach this idea that everything was going to happen at the end. There's seven years of tribulation and, and we've got movies about it and we've got um, books written about it all kinds of interesting stuff. Um, and he kind of suggested this. He said when, when the Old Testament prophets looked at the future, they couldn't see the church. What they saw was the cross, and, and they saw the second coming. Their vision didn't include the church. And so this stuff that it's describing in, in Daniel and in Revelation can't be talking about the church in the Middle Ages. It can't be talking about even the church today. It's talking about the church sometime in the future, and it doesn't even start to apply until there's a rapture and, and all of God's people disappear. So we don't have to worry about it. We're, you know, we're cool with God, and then poof, we're gone, and, and then all that stuff that Daniel and Revelation describes is going to happen. And uh, too bad for all those people that are left on earth. That, that's going to suck for them. But uh, you and I were hidden from view according to that theory. And, uh, and that it takes the spotlight off the church 
takes the spotlight off of those things that are really calling us to repentance. But this theory isn't in the Bible. It is a fabrication. It's completely made up. It's just somebody's idea. And, and so here's what I would encourage. I would encourage that you go home and study the Bible. Check your Bible. Stick with what it says. Let the Bible be your guide, not the theories of your pastor or me. Study God's Word. And if it's in God's Word, then say, yes, Lord, I believe. And if it's not, then say, well, that was an interesting theory, and, and find what the Bible says. So check your Bible, stick with what it says, and also please be ready when Jesus comes. Whatever it's going to look like, let your life today abide in Jesus, and you can be ready. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, tonight the only thing that really matters is not what you, uh, not what I say. It doesn't matter what books say, it just matters what you say. We understand the hour that we're living in is late. We are uh, in the toes of that statue in Daniel too, and we know that the the second coming is near. And I just pray that um, in this very important time, that you would help us to know what the Bible says for sure. And Lord, we choose to stand on the Bible alone for what we believe, and we long for Jesus to come again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're taking a break tomorrow. 